Hey friends, this is David Bendett, Senior Pastor of Rock City Church in beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to my personal testimony today, and my prayer is that you would be inspired to believe God for more. If you'd like to hear more about my personal life, I share a lot of stories of church. But more importantly, my hope and my prayer is that you would be supernaturally inspired to believe for God, to do great and mighty things in your own life and in your family's life. And of course, I always want you to stay fired up. Testimonies had three parts, who I was, what Jesus did to change my life, and who I am now. A lot of you know who I am now, and a lot of you have heard bits and pieces of my story. The reason why I take time once a year to tell my testimony is to help it help put things into greater context. So if you walk in and one day you hear me say, I spent a year in prison, which some of you may not have known, and that's all you hear, you don't have the full picture of why and how God redeemed my life and what God did. So I tell bits and pieces of my story and my messages, but today I want to tell you my whole story, and I'm going to tell it to you fast because of time, but I'm going to just tell you the highlights, okay? Is that all right? I do this once a year, uh, and I believe it will really encourage you to share your own story, and this way you guys can also make a better decision if you feel like I'm your guy for your pastor, because you'll know more about my past, okay? So I'm going to talk fast, I'm going to talk quick, and I'm going to tell you some things in an overview and some things specifically. I was born in 1970 in Miami, Florida. I'm 45 years old, and I was born to a Greek mother. She's full-blooded Greek and a Jewish father. My mom was a very famous hairdresser in Miami when I was born. She did all the 1970s beeline defense of the Miami Dolphins, including Nick Budokani, Bob Greasy, Larry Zonka, and if you were back in the 70s, you know who they were. My wife was born in 1984, so when I talk about anything prior to that, she's like, you're so old. <laughs> okay? And so uh, my mom was doing a lot of very famous Jewish attorneys and lawyers and um, famous TV personalities. And it was at that time that my mom met my father. My mom came over from Greece when she was 16 on a boat. She learned uh, to speak English when she got over here. And uh, she was a, a full-time hairdresser. And then at night, she first started out being a, a stewardess for National Airlines. Some of you will, may remember who they are. It was at the time of Pan Am and TWA, a long time ago. And uh, then she started working as a cocktail waitress. And so uh, when she met my father, my father was a very wealthy, famous band manager. And at the time, he managed bands, Barbara Streisand, Rod Stewart, and many other big-name bands as they traveled around the country. When I was born, my dad uh, did not want me to be born. In fact, he told my mom, are you sure that you want to have this baby? I met my dad, my blood father, when I was 28 years old, and he told me I didn't want to be a dad at the time. And so when I was born, he was pretty checked out. I was born out of wedlock. He and my mom were not married, and he was uh, you know, making a ton of money, driving Corvettes and my mom was a young Greek girl in her 20s, in her early 20s. They basically dated for a while, and then, of course, my mom got pregnant. And so he didn't want much to do with me and decided when I was one that he was going to go to Beverly Hills, California, and I got conflicting stories from him. He said they, he wanted my mom and I to come, and she, my mom said that he didn't want to come. I don't know who's telling the truth. It doesn't really matter. 
The point is, my, my blood father wound up moving to Beverly Hills, California. You can Google my name. He's got the same name as me, but different last names, okay? He's full-blooded Jewish my, or Hebrew. My mom was Greek, and uh, when I was born, he hightailed it to California. My mom went to the Greek Orthodox Church a little bit, but got offended about something or another, and so I had no church upbringing when I was a child. I was raised by a single mom who left me at the babysitter all day long, and I hated going to the babysitter. The babysitter that I went to was very low income, and I re- I'll never forget when they would try to feed me cereal, and I'd find baby roaches in the cereal. The, the, the mom had three daughters that were very abusive, always verbally yelling at me and screaming at me, no air condition in the summer, and I remember my mom would drop me off in the morning and leave me all the way until night, many times not even coming, coming to get me and leaving me there overnight. I was abandoned as a child. My mom was working two jobs. She, was a cocktail, she became a cocktail waitress at night, and she wouldn't come get me sometimes until 10 or 11 at night and many times till the morning. And I re- would remember just looking out the window, just hoping and dreaming that my mom would come get me. That was my first five years. Okay? When I was five, my mom met a man that ultimately became my stepfather. And this guy was a wonderful man in so many ways. His name's Ed Moore, and that's who I consider my dad. Ed Moore's from Kansas. He had gone to uh, the Virgin Islands to work construction, and then he had come back to Miami and gotten a job in the air freight business and wound up meeting my mom at the bar as a, when my mom was a cocktail. It was a very high-end bar, by the way, at the time in, in Coconut Grove. <clears throat> very, very high-end. It wasn't like a dump bar, but anyway, that's where they met, and Ed Moore really embraced me right off the bat as a son. He started taking me to do things and throwing the ball with me and reading the encyclopedia to me, and he picked me up when he'd get off. We read encyclopedias in those days. That's right. You guys know encyclopedia, not Wikipedia. (coughs) Anyway, so he, he, he embraced me, and what really happened was the spirit of adoption came into my life. And that's why one of my main life messages, my number one life message is sonship. Because the abandonment is such a big deal. And do you know that every single one of us either are or have been orphans at one time? Every one of you were orphans, whether you knew it or not. When you give your life to Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 8 that he adopts us as sons. And to be adopted means that you once were not a part of the family. And through Jesus Christ, God makes us an gives us a rightful inheritance. He calls us the seed of Abraham. And now through Jesus Christ, we receive that spirit of adoption where we can call out Abba, Father. And now, when we once were without hope and without a father, the heavenly father came into our life and adopted all of you. So you all need to understand this spirit of adoption and sonship is really prime on God's heart. And in fact, in these end days, it's the spirit of Elijah turning the hearts of the fathers to the sons. That's why I love the spirit of Elijah. What was, the, what was one of the coolest things about Elijah? Fire and calling down fire. Elijah was a man of fire, and he knew how to call down God's fire, and I want that spirit of Elijah in my own life. And really, the spirit of Elijah is all about saving the next generation, laying ourselves prostrate on, down for this next generation, and doing whatever it takes to ransom the sons and daughters. You can read the story about Elijah, but one of my favorite stories of the Bible. Anyway... So Ed Moore was there for me, and then uh, he and my mom started living together. They never got married, but I still saw 
a lot of good things, but I also saw some bad things. No marriage, no committed long-term relationship. When my father was nine, or I'm sorry, when I was nine, Ed Moore moved back to Missouri, and the plan was for my mom to come there. My, my dad, uh, I call him my dad, when he moved to Missouri, I went to visit and loved it so much that I decided to stay in Missouri. And then he bought a ranch, a 31-acre ranch, where he raised quarter horses just outside of Kansas City in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. I loved it so much, and I loved him so much because he was there for me that I decided to stay in Missouri. And I lived on this ranch raising quarter horses and shoveling horse manure when I was in a little kid. So some of you didn't know that, but I have some Western in me. Trust me, that's why I like to wear cowboy boots. I always tell Amber I'm way more country than she is. But because she's from Texas, she wants to argue with me. But anyway, so I guess it's a Texas thing. Anyway, so... Um, I experienced the full-scale, small-town America life. Here's what I remember of small-town America. Everybody cheating on everybody, everybody gossiping, backstabbing, the one-mile strip on Main Street with the little parking lot that everybody hung out. If you grew up in small-town America and you were not a Christian, then you understand what I'm talking about. I got roped right into a promiscuous lifestyle. By the time I was in eighth grade, I smoked my first joint, I got drunk, and I lost my virginity. I didn't know God. My dad wasn't, Ed Moore was not a religious man. He'd gotten burned by the Presbyterian church, so he didn't raise me in church. And a lot of, there were a lot of things he did good for me. He taught me to work hard. By the time I was nine or ten years old, right, right around that time, the checkbook was in my name, and I paid the bills. He made me work hard for everything. I did chores. You know that word, chores? Because it seems like this new generation doesn't know what the word chores is, for goodness sakes. I, everything I had, I had to work for. If I went to the pizza place to play at the arcade, my dad was having me do one-arm push-ups in the arcade to give me a quarter to play the game. If I needed 20 bucks for a weekend to go to a movie and a dinner with friends, I was raking an acre and a half of, of oak tree, 175 oak trees and leaves, shoveling manure. I mean, I had to work for everything. My dad taught me to work for everything. But my dad also left me alone a lot. My mom wound up coming to Missouri, and she hated it. Her and my dad separated when I was 13 years old. She went back to Miami, and from that point, I was raised in a single-parent home by my dad. I would go visit my mom every summer, Christmas, and spring break, and every time I'd go visit my mom, she would just spoil me. Gold chains, letting me do whatever I want to do because she was overcompensating. My mom's love language was gift-giving, and so because she wasn't there and living in Miami and I was staying with my dad, every time I'd see her, she was spoiling me and really did a poor job raising me. She loved me, she cared a lot about me, but she really did not teach me values and principles the way that I should. My dad did in some way, but in other ways, he let me do whatever I want. Many times, he wouldn't come home from work until 5.30. So here I am, I'm wrestling, I'm meeting all the popular kids, I'm hanging, I'm wanting to chase girls all the time, I'm wanting to go out and drink on the weekends as a, at 14, 15 years old. So leaving me home alone a lot, would, I'd have people over, I started having parties, and I just gave into this lifestyle, but I didn't know anything different. There were no Christian clubs, nobody was preaching the gospel to me in my high school, I never heard the gospel, I didn't know anything about church, except when I'd go stay the night with friends. I'd go to the Catholic church, the Baptist church, the Methodist church, and I hated it, because all I saw was pews and old school religion, and I didn't like it, and we were farting around under the, can I say fart in church? Well, I did anyway. It's my church. We can say that. 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, you know, how about this? Sorry. Goofing around under the chairs, right? And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be in church. I started going to Metallica concerts, and it was 80s hair bands. And I was like, everything I saw about church, I just did not like or want anything to do with it, right? And so I just got into partying, and every summer I'd go back to Miami, and I would meet friends that were from Cuba. And at the time, Miami-Dade County in 1980s was all about the cocaine drug trafficking business. And so I got into that lifestyle, and they started sending me drugs to sell up in Missouri. And even in high school, I was selling these, th these drugs that they'd shipped to me on the side to older men that were in their 40s and 50s while I was also a state champion wrestler and most popular in high school and making honor roll grades. My dad would pay me for, for A's and pay me for B's and pay me and reward me. And what happened was, because I was neglected and because my dad would reward me for everything I did, I developed this measure-up performance mentality. And I carried that ultimately right into my relationship with the Heavenly Father. And the idea and the feeling was always, if I'm good enough, if I please people, I won't get abandoned or neglected. And that's called fear, shame, and control. It's a, it's a principle we teach in RTF. If you're afraid that people reject you or abandon you, or if you're walking in shame, what you do is you take control of the situation, you defend yourself, or you try to please people and measure up instead of being authentic to who you really are. That's why for me with church, I want authenticity. I don't want fake Christianity. I don't want your best face forward. I don't care about anything else but your heart and authenticity with the Lord. That's what I want, right? And so that's why we teach that a lot, because God broke that out of my life. So you don't have to measure up for me. I'm not out to measure up and please you. I'm not going to be the pastor in a cage. Whether you give or you don't give, I'm going to stay the same. I'm going to love you the same. I'm not out to meet with everybody to make you feel better so you'll stay in the church. I want you to have a personal relationship with Christ. I want to teach you to do family. You need to get in relationship with each other. And I'll do my best to love you and show you what it means to be on fire in a non-religious goofball way. That's what I'm about because God set me free from it myself. I saw a lot of failed relationships, but God rescued, and he, had, he, he saved me out of a life of total dysfunction. So my high school life was crazy. I went to a Baptist church camp when I was a kid, only for the girls. It's the only reason why I went. But I answered an altar call when I was a kid, and I gave my life to Jesus at 13, but nobody ever followed up. So I can't really say that I was born again at that time. I had no discipleship and no, nobody following up with me. But I did get my first Bible, and I'll never forget the first scripture I ever learned was Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to him, and they are safe. I'll never forget that scripture. It's the first scripture. I'll also never forget the first dream I ever had when I was 9 or 10 years old, <clears throat> and I first moved to Missouri. In this dream, I was being chased by monsters in the dream. In the dream. I was a young kid. And they were chasing me, and I was running. And I remember running through a window into what looked like a banqueting hall. And there were round tables with white linen, and there were all these plates and, and knives and forks and, and glasses set up, like a banqueting hall or a restaurant of some sort. And I ran through the window in a transparent way, and so did all the demonic forces that were chasing me. And I raised my hand up, and I said, stop in Jesus' name. And my hair stood up on end, and all the plates and knives and, and forks all stood up on end as well. Now, I didn't know Jesus, but I remember this dream. And so I always believed that the Lord had some call on my life, but I never fully understood. And I'm not going to tell you what I think that dream means now, but it's very profound and special for me and sacred in my own heart. But early on, God gave me that dream. 
So I just continued to spiral into drug dealing and drug addiction and living a dual lifestyle in high school, sleeping around, being promiscuous, and just going off the edge. Well, I knew I needed to get out of, out of Missouri, and my dad had always pushed me to go to college, so I wound up moving back to Miami, Florida, where I went to a community college called Miami-Dade Community College. When I got to Florida, I wound up meeting a group of people that were deadheads. Deadheads are people that go to Grateful Dead concerts, okay? The Grateful Dead is a band from the 60s, and it's all about peace, love, and happiness, right? It's not like death metal, even though the name may sound like that. Some of you probably don't know who they are. Anyway, the Grateful Dead is this improvisational, spontaneous band that, in, that brings, like, jazz and fusion and country and folk all together, right? And it's all these hippies and all these, you know, peace, love, and happiness people, like 10, 20,000 people that go from city to city on tour all year long, and they just live on the road in the parking lots, okay? And so I went to my first Grateful Dead concert, and while I was at the Grateful Dead concert at night, walking around high as a kite, there was a drum circle, and I was immediately drawn to it. So somebody handed me some bongos, and I sat down and played till my hands bled. And I loved the percussion so much that I took jazz ensemble, rock ensemble, and percussion ensemble. And what the devil meant for his, his good, what, what the devil meant for my bad, God turned around. And now, from that moment, I play percussion wild and crazy for Jesus, okay? But that's how I first picked up the percussion. So I ultimately got into a reggae band. All my friends were Rastas. They were all from Jamaica. I grew up around the black culture. I was playing in reggae bands on Miami Beach full-time. I was dealing pot, I was doing LSD and selling drugs and going to ladies' night and living for myself and floundering around in community college, dropping out of class, getting high before school, drinking at night. This was my lifestyle. When I was in high school, I forgot to tell you, I got arrested two times and put into jail, busted for pot in high school. When I got to Miami, I got arrested two times and busted for pot in Miami, all misdemeanor charges. There were several close calls in my life with cocaine and other things that could have put me in prison for a very long time. Lots of incredible stories that I'm not going to tell you right now of how I believe the Lord ultimately protected me because my time and my day would come. And so what happened was I'm in Miami. I'm living for myself. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to Grateful Dead concerts. I'm playing percussion in the reggae band. I got into New Age, specifically crystal meditation. I would meditate on crystals and put them in the bottom of the sea on full moon nights and thinking they had special power. You see, crystals are natural conductors of electromagnetic energy. So I believed if you meditated on crystals, you could communicate with with spirits, right? So I'd meditate on these crystals, and I considered myself spiritual. But what happened was I got into the theory of relativism that whatever you believed could get you to God. All roads believe to God. So when somebody tried to preach at me at a Grateful Dead concert, I'd get these random evangelists that'd come and try to talk to me. I'd say, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in everything else too. What I'd see at these Grateful Dead concerts is people standing on the street corner with big signs that said, turn or burn, repent or perish. Probably the, the, the Kansas people, whatever, the Westboro Baptist Church, for all I know, was who I was seeing. Like crazy people, crazy people. And the Grateful Dead, you know, we're all yelling at them and arguing. I just didn't want anything to do with that. And all I saw was organized religion. But I still believed that there was a God. And I still believed that, that Jesus was real, but every, all roads led to God. 
I remember one day with all my crystals in my car, I'm getting high, and I said, well, we're going to see what the Bible says. So I opened up the Bible, and the first scripture I ever read from the Bible was this scripture. It was 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 27. And I, this is what I read, that David chases down these people and cuts off their foreskins to, as a dowry to get his wife. I thought, this is the craziest thing I have ever read. I said, if this is what... Because I didn't understand. And still, some of you are like, what does that mean? Stick around. I'll teach it to you one day. Okay? Foreskins has everything to do with reproduction. And God was all about stopping the enemy from destroying his purpose and plan, which the enemy wanted to destroy the Israelites. Anyway, another story, another day, another time. But the point is, I didn't understand it at the time. And I said, this is crazy. Anytime I tried to read the Bible, all I could understand or all I thought that I was reading was Chinese. I didn't understand anything in the Bible every time I tried to read it. I was into the Catholic candles. I had a crucifix hanging on my wall right next to astrology signs and Jerry Garcia poster. <laughs> I mean, that's how jacked up I was. I was just totally naive. I'd never heard the gospel for what it really was, and I wasn't completely at my end. But in 1992, when it rained, when it, rained it poured. How many of you know, how many of you were there when it rained, it poured in your life? God has a way of getting your attention, doesn't he? And in 1992, on my way to a Grateful Dead concert in Ohio, I got pulled over and busted for 17 hits of LSD. LSD comes with a mandatory minimum sentence of 18 months, okay? And I got arrested for trafficking. Now, I really wish I could go back and have a picture of what that, that looked like when I got busted because it was a hilarious scene. I'm driving a 1984 Oldsmobile Tornado, which is a massive car. I've got red wrestling shoes, a tie-dye long johns on, a tie-dye long sleeve shirt on, a tie-dye red bandana, a Mexican poncho, and I'm getting strip searched on the side of the highway. I'm telling you, it, was, it had to be a hilarious scene looking back on it now. Let's just say I've always been ex extreme and I've always liked bright colors and fire and red. It's just always been in my nature, okay? <laughs> anyway, so I get busted I'm facing a third-degree felony. I, a drug dealer um, bonds me out of jail. I catch a Greyhound bus to the next Grateful Dead concert in Soldier Field. I forgot to say this last service, but I wound up sleeping in the parking lot that night in Soldier Field with a duffel bag under my head. I didn't share this last service, but many, many years later when I got into the corporate world and God totally turned my life around, I wound up staying in a Hyatt Regency. I was making over $100,000 a year, and I'll never forget when I stayed in that Hyatt, looking down out of my balcony at the very place that I had once slept on in the parking lot. It was, a, it was so incredible for me. But at that time, it was one of the hardest things for me. I was in a very miserable situation. So I catch a ride home to Miami with a friend of mine that was on tour. This guy was a total anarchy guy, car covered in stickers, long hair. And as I'm driving home, he had written in his back glass, smile, Satan loves you. And I read that all the way back to Miami. When I got to Miami, I had been home for about two weeks. This is August of 1992, when I realized I had caught scabies from his car. Scabies is like a mite that gets all over your body. It had gotten in my clothes, on my furniture, in everything in my apartment. Well, I finally, after two weeks, I had been busted. My car's impounded. I'm facing a felony. I caught scabies. And then right when I finally got rid of the scabies, who all knows what happens in my, happened in Miami, Florida in August of 1992. Hurricane Andrew, Category 5 hurricane, rolls right over my house, wipes everything out. I go inland to my mom's house, and I'm out there with my mom and her boyfriend. We run into the closet. 
We have put a mattress over our head. Water comes up to our neck. My mom's so freaked out, she poops her pants. I'm sitting in poopy water. The roof caves in on top of us. The roof caves in on top of us. I thought I was going to die. My life is as miserable as miserable could get, or so I thought. I wanted to cry out to a God, but I didn't know who to cry out to. And that was when I first experienced, for the very first time, the fear of God. Because when you're about to die, you'll want to cry out to God, I can assure you. Anyway, so... Um, it was a miserable deal. So I catch a, we hitchhike back to my apartment, 13-foot water line up the side of the building, stinky lake that's full of all kinds of dead saltwater fish. And for two months, I lived in this condemned apartment building eating uh, army rations. National Guard was outside the front door. I'm drinking warm water. I'm eating, eating this cold food that they're dropping off on my doorstep. It's 85, 90 degrees every single night, no electricity. It was miserable. I'd go out on my balcony, and I'd see total destruction everywhere. There were 300,000 people homeless from Hurricane Andrew, by the way. Category 5 hurricane. 300,000. That's the whole, almost the whole city of Corpus Christi homeless. Can you imagine? So I'm living in this condemned apartment building because there's nowhere to go. There's no hotels all the way to Orlando at this point. And if there are, they're price gouging everything in Florida. And so... I'll never forget, I went on my balcony. I was so miserable. I was sweating. It was horrible. I was like, man, I really need to get some comfort. So I had a little bit of pot. I rolled up a joint, and I got high. And I was like, this is miserable. It didn't do anything for me. It was like hell. And I was like, who wants to be high in hell? This isn't any fun. And so I got my crystal, and I started meditating on my crystal. Om, om. I might as well have been meditating on this water bottle. I mean, it didn't do anything for me. So I walked back to my bedroom, and there was my Bible sitting on the, the bookshelf, dusty, that I hadn't opened in forever. And I said, well, we'll see what this thing has to say. So I grabbed it and flipped it open, and I turned right to Matthew chapter 7, and I read, starting at verse 24, I read, whoever hears the word and doesn't do it's likened unto the man that builds his house on, whoever hears the word of mine and does do them, it's like in the man who builds his house on the rock. But whoever hears the word and doesn't do it, it's like in the man that builds his house on the sand. And when the wind and the rain and the floods come, that house falls with a mighty crash. And I said, here I am at my rock bottom. And all the times I couldn't understand the Bible, I turned to this scripture. And I just went through a hurricane. What are the chances? So I shut the Bible. I threw it down on the bed. I said, this is too much of a dink. There's no way. I said, there's no way. So after the next six more months go by, my life spirals out of control, more drugs, fired from my job, my girlfriend breaks up for me, I'm at my total rock bottom, I'm facing prison time, and I, I'll never forget, I opened up my Bible again, I said, we'll see what this thing says, and I turned to Jeremiah 18, and I read about the Lord taking Jeremiah to the potter's house, and how the potter got marred in the hands of the potter as it was spinning on the wheel, and the potter mashed it down and made another vessel more beautiful than the first one. And, I knew, and then the Lord says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. And I knew that that was my life. I had spun out of control. I used my gift and my talents for my own ability. I rejected God, and because of it, I was banging my head against the wall, and I was finally at my end. But when you get to your end, I'm telling you, it's God's beginning. And if you're at your end, it's God's beginning. And that's what God was doing to me as he was smashing me down. He was smashing me down. And I knew that I needed to be made into another vessel. And I prayed the most powerful prayer that day. I fell down on my bed in a fetal position. And I cried out to God. And I said this, God, if you're really there, if there is a God, I need help. I said, God, please have mercy on me if you're there. And that was the day 
that my life turned around because I cried out to him with authenticity. I was desperate, and I prayed the most powerful prayer you can pray. God, help me. And you know what? He sure did. <laughs> Things really began to change for my, for my life. I wound up going all the way to jury trial. I remember sitting in jury trial lying completely under oath. I denied that the drugs were ever mine. I went to grand jury. I had a cross with a crucifix sitting on the table, thinking it would somehow persuade the jury that my religiosity would save me. How many of you have done that before? Come on, don't tell a lie. You think lighting your candle or your little cross is going to save you, but it's not. Only Jesus can, okay? But so it didn't work. I got found guilty. The judge, I'll never forget, the judge is a Greek judge. His name's Cosmo Glavis. My mom was there at my sentencing. I had to serve 18 months. No ifs, ands, or buts. My mom is crying, speaks to the judge in Greek, and the, and the Greek judge says, I know they say blood is thicker than water, but I have no choice. But if anything, I'm just going to give them the minimum because I could have got four years for taking it to a grand jury. So I got sentenced. My mom's crying, and she hands me a bag that I had packed for prison. I packed all my New Age books, my crystals, my, my Grateful Dead tapes, and uh, all these things thinking I could take it into jail. I got news for you. You ain't taking anything into prison, everybody, right? <laughs> my mom's crying. The bag's open. She hands it to me. I'm handcuffed. And the, the jailer says he can't take any of that to, to jail except for that one book. And he reaches in and pulls out my Bible. And off to jail I go with my Bible in my hand. Off to jail I go with my Bible in my hand, right? Well, I get put into the county jail. Now, listen, I was a huge advocate for the legalization of marijuana laws. I was a member of normal. I was all about it. I swore I'd smoke pot till the day I die. Here I get put into jail. I don't have anything to get high with. So what do I do to put myself to sleep every night? Start reading my Bible. God has a way. I'm just letting y'all know. So if you got a prodigal out there or if somebody's been put in jail or prison, I'm just telling you right now, thank God for jail. Because God knew that would be what I'd need. And every night I would read my Bible. I still struggle with old things. I wanted to get high. I wanted to get appealed out of, a, a, an appellate bond to get out of jail. It got denied. I was still cussing. I was still foul mouth. But God slowly over the course of time renewed me. And I finally got sent to a maximum security jail. When I got sent to the maximum security through a divine intervention, I got a job as a porter. Every day I was in this little tiny jail, six by nine, middle of summer, 90 degrees, 100 degrees actually. The only way I could get warm would be to lay down on the cold concrete floor. It was miserable. But I got this job as a porter, and a porter, somebody that works in jail, guess what my job was? Cleaning toilets. And it made so many other people mad because I was a short timer, and God divinely gave me this job so I could get out of my cell. So what they did, I would clean these toilets for all the people sleeping out on the floor because the prisons are overcrowded. So what they would do is they'd wipe feces and boogers all over the wall and all over the toilet and all over the floor to get back at me. But I didn't care because that toilet bowl brush was like a gold wand in my hand. You think I don't know what it means to be at the bottom and work hard? I was at my very bottom. But Jesus was doing something in me. And it was teaching, when I say be faithful with the little, the Lord said to me, you clean those toilets like they're golden thrones. And I did. And I'll never, ever forget that. I'll never forget it. And so I got threatened in prison. I have this incredible Joseph story that I don't have time to tell you about. I got promoted 
while I was in jail and uh, in this maximum security. And then I got sent to what I call a minimum security country club. Ice machines, pool tables, TVs in your cubicle, no jail cells because it's for nonviolent offenders, right? <laughs> it's still prison. Don't get me wrong, okay? It's still prison. But when I got there, I got a job as a master tutor, and I got about 300 hours of tutoring under my belt, and I was tutoring illiterates. And when you tutor people that don't know how to read, guess what the number one thing is that they want to learn to read is? The Bible. So they'd say, hey, would you teach me to read the Bible at night? So I had favor with the, the lead officer, and they let me go into the school classroom, and I started leading a Bible study every night with 25 people for an entire year, illiterates, and they'd come in and they'd say, what is God, what about this, what about that, where's, I got asked every question you could ever ask, and I didn't know the answers, but you know what I do during the day? I would research it. So really, prison wound up becoming a year of Bible school for me. The Gideons were coming into the prison every, every week, and the, and one day while I was flipping through my Bible, something really caught my attention. I read this scripture, Matthew 3.11. Now, I always liked fire. I used to do uh, fires. I used to uh, twirl fire, fire glow sticks. When I was going to the Grateful Dead, I loved wild colors. I loved everything. And one day I'm reading the Bible and I read this. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. I said, I wanted that. And so I asked the Gideons about it. And they said, well, if you want to be baptized in fire, meet us at chapel. So I go to chapel, they all gather around me, they lay hands on me, a hurricane of fire comes into my head, I start sweating, I start shaking, I have this profound experience with God, and for the two weeks right after that, I would see flashing blue lights, like twinkling, I mean full time, I can't explain it to you, except it was a supernatural phenomena for me. I had an experience that would forever change my life. I started praying in tongues. I got lit on fire like never before. And in turn, that year in prison wound up being wonderful me, for me. It was one of the best years of my life because I got to know Jesus in a profound way. When I got out of prison, I went back to Miami. And right away when I got back, my old friends were there. They all wanted me to get high. I didn't have any other friends. I had no Christian support group. So I struggled with that for a while. I would still smoke pot. I'd still every now and then go to the clubs. But the more that I did it, the more I didn't want to do it. I could see with different eyes now. Like the conviction was there. It wasn't the same for me anymore like it had been before. And so inevitably I realized I have to cut those old friends off because they're going to keep pulling me down. And through God's love and kindness, he finally delivered me of the drugs. He delivered me of the alcohol. He delivered me of the things in my life that were holding me back at that time. And I wound up burning all my Grateful Dead paraphernalia in this big fire. And that night I went to a church where a prophetess, Diane Palmer, was there. And she sang a word over me that God was going to give the kingdom of, of, that he was going to give his kingdom to me. And that he was proud of me that I've been in the desert, and where God's going to take me is going to be supernatural, and he's going to give his whole kingdom to me. I'll never, ever forget that word. You know there's a scripture that's that he says it's his good pleasure to give the kingdom to his children. Do you know that's a promise that all of you can have? It's not just a David Bendette thing. God wants all of us to possess his kingdom and to advance it on earth. And so I wound up getting involved in uh, my first church experience, had a band, I'll never forget walking in. It was banners and tambourines, and it was wild and crazy. I went to a Rama church that was in Miami. It was spirit-filled. People were laid out on the floor, but the pastor was really dysfunctional. Every time he'd go to pray for you, he'd jiggle his keys in his, like something spiritual was happening. And the more spiritual, he'd jiggle his keys a little bit more and a little bit more, okay? 
And then he'd go, be filled, be filled, be filled. It's all he would ever say. Be filled. Jiggle, 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 jiggle. Next thing you know, the guy's robbing the church behind the scene. The church disbands. That was my first church experience. Then right after that, I go to another church. All I can remember is that pastor got mad at somebody and started yelling and screaming at the guy. His teeth fell, that, fell out because he had false teeth. I'm like, man, I really got involved in some dysfunctional church. I'm just telling you. So finally he said, I am done with these white churches, and I decided I'm going to an all-black church. And I wound up spending two years in an on-fire, all-black church called Faith Christian Center and a pastor by the name of Winston Williams from Jamaica. And that's where I really refined my percussion skills. I learned all kinds of new Latin jazz because some of the players I played with are world-famous Latin jazz musicians. And that black church was awesome. Man, it was awesome. And we need some more blackness in here. I'm telling you right now. I was involved in all kinds of ministries, and I don't have time to tell you the whole amount, whole story because we're running out of time. What I do want to tell you is I wound up meeting a girl that was very young that had a, had a baby, and uh, she was uh, divorced at the time. She was very young. I was young. I wound up uh, making some poor decisions and getting married to her. My pastor gave me bad advice and said, we should elope, that because we were really struggling, that it's God's will for us to get married. I eloped. It was bad advice. I should not have married her. I married her. She was, she was bipolar, had a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing going on in her life, and it was really bad. And when we wound up moving to Tulsa to go to Oral Roberts University, God twisted my arm to get me to Oral Roberts University. I got to Oral Roberts University, and she really spun out. She decided she didn't want to be a Christian, didn't want to live for the Lord, stole the car, went back to Miami first time, and wanted a divorce. I didn't give her the divorce. She wound up coming back a second time. After she'd had an affair, I forgave her. She wound up going back, sleeping around again, calling me every night while she was with other people. And finally, the Lord released me and said, you've done all you know to do. I'm releasing you to divorce her. I had biblical grounds to do it, and so I divorced her. After that time, my life just grew and blossomed. I made a commitment to live upright and pure before the Lord, and that's another reason why I didn't fully get married. I didn't get married until I was 40 when I met the right woman for my life, which is here this morning who has been the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. (laughs) We still giggle about it. She says, I don't know how this ever happened. I never thought I would have married a guy like you. And then she tells me she loves me and I'm the best thing that ever happened to her life. And so, anyway, I experienced a lot of church dysfunction and I moved to Oral Roberts University, wound up going to an all-black church there called Higher Dimensions, Carlton Pearson. He went, that, at the time, the church was really on fire, but he wound up spinning out of control into universalist teaching, lost the church, got disbanded from ORU, really was a bad deal. And um, so while I was in Tulsa, I wound up going to Oral Roberts University. I wound up graduating with honors with a business degree in organizational relations. I wound up going to a church called Open Bible Fellowship with a guy by the name of Darrell Evans who wrote the songs, Let the River Flow, Trading My Sorrows. Uh, That church was in heavy renewal, and every day I'd come up to the altar, and they'd pray for me, and I'd cry. It was a church similar to this. I'd cry every day at the altar as I went through healing. I got introduced to Restoring the Foundations ministry. I broke all the the generational things out of my past, the abandonment and the neglect. I got a lot of inner healing. I dealt with soul ties. I dealt with so many things. I'm still wearing my my purity ring, which I also wear, double it up as a, a wedding ring as well. But this ring will be passed on to my son. 
or my daughter because I got a lion ring to pass on too. But this was a ring that I made a commitment to live pure and to live upright. And I still wear it proud for what God did. He really, really restored my purity in my life during those times. And so Tulsa was really great for me. I wound up taking a job with a, 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 a pharmaceutical insurance company. And God promoted me to making $180,000 a year. And I was managing a team of sales reps all over the nation as a regional sales manager. All the stories of how that happened is really incredible, but I'm, I'm running out of time. But I just want to let you guys know that that was supernatural for me. I wound up becoming the youth pastor at this church after five years of volunteering. I volunteered for five years before I took a position at that church. I was a prayer partner. I was on the worship team, three services a Sunday and every Wednesday, every day, playing for free, volunteering, and serving at the church, men's ministry, and working hard, just honoring the Lord while I traveled and made a ton of money in the corporate world. They asked me to become the youth pastor. The youth ministry grew from 20 kids to 100 kids. I took them to Cuba, Trinidad, Jamaica, or uh, the mountains of Mexico, all over the world. It was supernatural, supernatural missions. This youth group was on fire, and it was there that the Lord finally called me out of the corporate world, and I left $180,000 job a year to make $30,000 a year working for the church. But I had saved my money. I had had a vision. I knew it was what God was calling me to do. I then started a ministry school called the Firestorm School of Ministry, where I took all of John Paul Jackson's dream interpretation classes. I had Jack Frost came to the church and taught about sonship. It changed my life. I met Jason Upton. I became personal friends with Jason Upton. I got rocked. If you don't have any of Jason Upton's worship, you should get it. The guy is amazing. And so my time in Tulsa was really, really incredible. And it's also in Tulsa where I got into good coffee. I didn't drink my first coffee cup until I was 33 years old. And uh, I drank, I was having macchiatos in the afternoon. And then finally, after doing the youth for five years, the Lord said, it's time for you to go. I thought I was going to go to Miami and open up a campus outreach at the University of Miami. But God said, nope, you're going to Corpus Christi. And I got offered a position to be a campus pastor with a mega church out of Oklahoma a guy by the name of Pastor Mark Crow was taking over a church here to be, a, and he needed a campus pastor. I did not want to come to Corpus. I did not want to work for a mega church. I did not want to want to want to be here. But God twisted my arm and He said, "You are going. This is what I've called you to do." So I came to Corpus, and I didn't know anybody when I got here. And the worst thing that, about Corpus Christi for me was the lack of good coffee. And so I was like, "Man, this stinks. No good coffee. There was only Starbucks." And so after about a year, we decided to start a coffee shop. We started the first coffee shop through, through a divine connection with some family members that are connected here on Alameda. And um, when I first got to the church, there was about 40, 50 people that are still here. The Fex, the Garls, the Fawcett's, um, and there's a lot more. I can't remember everybody's name, the Enderleys. There was a core group that had fought through and stayed at that church. That church had whittled down. And for six years, I was the campus pastor at this church. After the second year, I went into this heavy fog. I was institutionalized. I lost the fire. It was brutal. But in the third year, I wound up making the commitment and meeting my wife and marrying Amber. And Amber and I spent our first year of marriage living in Port Aransas, uh, running the coffee shop out there, fishing every day, and just enjoying being together while I just went through the motions at Victory Church. It was really, really hard. There are a lot of reasons why it was hard. And I'm not going to say anything negative about that pastor. I have to take responsibility as well. There were a lot of relationships that were broken. I made some mistakes. But at the end of the day, because I stuck with it, I wound up marrying Amber. It was the best decision after, after Jesus of my life. 
And then after a couple more years of just going through the motions, finally, Pastor Mark said, listen, this isn't going to grow more than 250 people. Maybe Corpus isn't where we're supposed to be. We're going to pull out a Corpus and we're cutting you loose. And he said, I'm not giving you anything. You're on your own. We're done. We're taking it all to do another campus. And so it was at that time that Amber and I were faced with the decision. Live in Port Aransas, palm trees, coffee, my Boston whaler, watching the dolphin at sunset every night. The simple life, non-reality. Or stick with the, the couple hundred people that had stuck with us and walked through life with us and start a church. And through a divine connection with Kevin Leal, we wound up making the decision to start Rock City Church. And Amber got pregnant. And on December 9th, we had our very first service in a fellowship hall. And five days later, our first daughter was born, Cadence. We had our service on December 9th and December 14th. We started our first service in a fellowship hall of First Christian Church where I had told the Lord, I'm never going to start a church in a cafeteria. And sure enough, we did. But that 14 months was so special, wasn't it? For those of you that were there, that 14 months was very, very special for us. We didn't have any money. The chairs were breaking. The sound wasn't good, but the presence of the Lord was there. And what happened was that began a process of God breaking me out of the fog. And I want to really say that Kevin Leal and the prophets and bringing the prophets in really helped to bring me back to who I really was. And I restarted to slowly regain my identity. And, the, and I want to say thanks to everybody that stuck with me through that difficult time. And we maintained about 225 people at the Fellowship Hall of First Christian Church. And in turn, after the seventh month, God opened up an incredible door for us to buy this shopping center with no money down, owner financed. I wrote a $600 check to buy this shopping center. And through a supernatural intervention from the Lord, we didn't have to raise any money or do any fundraising. God provided $250,000 for us to build out this shopping center or build out this church debt-free. And almost overnight, the church nearly doubled in size. Now, part of it is, of course, being by the highway. A lot of you have come. You saw the church. You wanted to check us out. But more than that, it's because we're in a great move of God. And more than that, it's because God strategically positioned us in Flower Bluff for a reason. There's a reason why we're here. And we decided to call the church Rock City Church because we have a vision for the city. We're the city built on the rock. We're the body of Christ. And we're called to be rooted upon the foundation of his rock. And I have a heart and a much bigger vision for the city, a dream center, a, a house of prayer. I see expansion. I see expansion because expansion gives us greater influence. And I want to see the kingdom of God advanced in this community. My prime messages for my life are sonship. If I only had one message to preach, it would be sonship. And then it would be right behind that, guess what? The fire of God. Why? Because if I can teach you to hear God's voice, you know that God's voice and fire, the word and fire. I want to teach you to hear God's voice because when you're hearing God's voice, it lights you on fire. His word lights you on fire. What did the disciples say on the walk to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus? Did not our hearts burn in us when he did what? When he talked to us. And that's what I want for you. I don't know how to... I don't want to do any of the dysfunction of my past. I didn't start this church because that was broken. I start, we started Rock City Church because we're pioneers. We're forerunners. We started this church because I believe in more, not because everybody else is jacked up. That's why I'm not going to diss and dog out every other church. Instead, we're on a mission to do something new. God wants to teach us what it means to do the kingdom, to do family. I never really heard garden teaching and tree teaching and community and life and family and non-institutional. 
And that's why I talk about it so much. Okay? And many of us have to break off the institutionalized components from our past. And I want to help you do that. So let's let go of the church dysfunction. Let's do church like we've never done it before. Build relationships, guys. I have no other agenda but to see you lit on fire and to become sons and daughters and to advance the kingdom of God. There it is. Those three things. Okay? I'll leave you with this last thing. I know I've gone a little bit over, but I want to leave you with this last thing. One last story for you. Some of you have heard this part, but this was just one of the coolest things I forgot to tell you. When I, my grandparents owned some property in Colorado, which is prime elk hunting, and I love to hunt. I love to fish, and I love to hunt. And so uh, when I was a youth pastor in Tulsa, I was going to go up elk hunting in Colorado, and I, we stopped to buy a gun. I was going to buy a rifle. Well, I got denied because of this felony that was on my record from my past. And I wept and cried all the way to Colorado. So I reached back out to this attorney who had told me after five years I could get it adjudicated. And he said, when I called him, he said, that was, that was they've changed the law. It had been ten, over 10 years now. And he said, they changed the law, but let's go ahead and file it and see what they say. Well, lo and behold, they approved it. And I had to go before the parole board. And when I looked at the letter that I got from the parole board, I had to go to this hearing in front of the same judge, Cosmo Glavis, 10 years later, the same Greek judge. Now, I had graduated uh, summa cum laude from Oral Roberts University. I, was, I had owned my second home at this point. I had 100 high school students in the youth ministry. I was very successful in all that I had done, and now I had to go face my past. I was having nightmares of getting thrown back in jail. I had to fill out the form about me lying under oath, like tell the whole story, and now I had to tell the truth. I lied under oath because I'm a Christian now. I'm going to tell the truth. So I was having these nightmares that I would go back, and I hadn't told anybody my story. The youth group, the pastors, no one knew. My boss, that was my best friend, knew that I had been in jail. And part of it was because I was working for them and I was afraid that I either get fired, I was walking in some shame. And now I had to go face this head on because what would people think? So I didn't tell anybody. But now I had to go up to Ohio and one of my closest friends, Tor Nordstrom, that got me into the coffee business flew with me. And he said, I'm going to go with you because you're going to tell your whole story. You're going to testify to the entire courtroom and that judge of how Jesus, you're going to preach the gospel to that judge. And at the time I... At the time, I had short, you know, spiked hair, wore a suit and tie, super clean cut, took my earrings out, and I walk in, and the courtroom's full, and the judge was older, and he's throwing people in jail, and it's full of all these people that are getting sentencing, and I thought, oh, man, I'm in big trouble. And my old attorney that I had hired from my pot days, who was part of normal, looked raggedy with stains on his shirt, and I said, what have I gotten myself into? This guy's not going to get anything for me. So I walk in, and I sit down, and the anointing hit me so strong, and when they called my name, I walked up. And the judge said, the judge said, tell me why I should grant you this adjudication because we don't do it anymore, but I want to hear your story. And I said, well, judge, I went to Oral Roberts University. He goes, Oral Roberts, he's a crook. That means nothing to me. What else have you done? I said, I graduated from Miami-Dade Community College. He goes, that's a good school. He goes, what else have you done? I said, I'm a pastor. He goes, so that doesn't mean anything to me. I said, well, your honor, here's what I want to tell you. I want to say thank you for throwing me into jail 10 years ago. Thank you so much because that was the best year of my life. And I've given my life to Jesus Christ and now I influence an entire new generation for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And had you not put me in jail, this wouldn't happen today. And I just want to say thank you. And the courtroom was dead silent 
Everybody that's about to get sentenced is in total awe. And you could hear a pin drop in that courtroom. And the judge starts weeping because nobody had ever told him, thank you for throwing me in jail. And the judge with tears in his eyes picks up the anvil and says, adjudication approved. And my record was completely wiped clean. <clears throat> and I've told some of you this story, how I applied to get into the local jail to go and do a Bible study at the county jail here. And the, uh, the sergeant ran a background check on me, and it took two months. So I finally called the guy. I said, what happened? And he said, well, something's come up on your record. I said, what came up on my record? He says, well, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, you were busted for pot a couple times. I said, sir, sergeant, who wasn't busted for pot in the late 80s? And he goes, he goes, you're right, you're approved. <laughs> Isn't that a funny story? Here's why I tell you the story. I tell you my testimony because I want you to, I do want you to feel more connected to me, but I also want to encourage you, you can tell your story. And you all have a message and you all have a testimony. Be that walking dead man, be that walking dead woman where it's not about you, it's about him. There's so much that I left out, and you'll hear bits and pieces of it as I preach over the course of time. But God has forgiven me of so much, and because of that, I love him so much. He's so kind, and he's so faithful. He, I'm very long-suffering with you. Trust me. I am very long-suffering, and I'm very patient with you. I'm willing to stick it with you for the rest of your life. I'm in it to win it. And God has done so much in me, and I want to see you guys bloom and blossom into everything. You don't have to have a testimony like me, but we were all orphaned. We were all abandoned at one time. And that's why you need Jesus Christ. You need the love of a father in your life. And I'm going to leave you with this last scripture. Let's pull up the Jeremiah scripture from Jeremiah chapter 17. One of my life scriptures, aside from Romans 8, 15 through 17, about being a son, I'm going to leave you with this scripture, and then I'm going to pray for you. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Verse 8. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. God wants us to not be anxious. He wants us to trust him. I'm telling you, I've lived paycheck to paycheck. I know what it means to be at rock bottom. I know what it means to barely make it. I know what it means to be broke, busted, and disgusted. I've been at the bottom of the bottom. But God in his kindness has always seen me through. And that's why this church will always be a church full of his love, his power, his forgiveness, his grace, and his kindness. We're always going to have a special place for the outcast. Because the Bible says he makes the outcast a strong nation. And we were all outcasts at one time. When the hurting and the smelly and the drug addicts come in off the streets, I'm going to do my best to love them with boundaries. Sometimes I have to tell them to leave because they're here on a mission of not giving their lives to Christ but to be disruptive. But at the end of the day, I have a real heart for those in prison, those out on the streets, those that are lost. And that's why Dream Centers, and I believe that's why God put us in Flower Bluff. We're an outreach-oriented church, everybody. We can't be an introverted church. We must be an extroverted. This is a place for training, equipping, and sending to get filled with the power and have experiences because experiences change your life. God wants you to have experiences with him. Let's break out of the doldrums of religion. Let's break out of the fear and the worry of what other people are going to think. Get past being a man pleaser. Get past being lukewarm and get on fire. He'll see you through. He loves you. If he didn't love you, he would have wiped out mankind by now. 
I'm telling you, he did not come to condemn you, but that, the, that through him we would be saved. That's his plan. So let's break out of the crisis of condemnation. That's the crisis. The word condemnation means crisis in the Greek. Stop walking in condemnation, everybody. Walk in the greatness of who Jesus is. Hey, friends, thank you for taking the time to listen to my testimony today. I know that was a lot in a short amount of time, and believe it or not, there's even more. I hope you'll come and visit sometime when you're in Corpus Christi, and I hope that you'll continue to believe that God can do supernatural things for you, your children, and your future. I love you all so much, and again, you better stay fired up.